Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode seven, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1962 black and white indie horror film, Carnival of Souls. It was directed by Herc Harvey and written by John Clifford. It stars Candice Hillegoss, Francis Feist, Art Ellison, Sidney Berger, and Herc Harvey. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So director Herc Harvey performed and taught theater at Kansas University and broke into the film business as an actor, director, and producer for some of the movies being made by Centron Corporation of Lawrence, Kansas, which was an independent industrial and educational film production company. So you know those silly educational films from the 1960s that everyone makes fun of? Yeah. That's what he that's what he did. <laughs> oh my god, amazing. He made I those. love it. <laughs> so while he was driving to California for work, Harvey passed the abandoned Saltaire Pavilion in Salt Lake City, Utah, and envisioned a group of ghostly apparitions dancing together. He had no other idea for a plot, but he knew he needed to make this movie. So he recruited fledgling joke writer John Clifford, a Kansas native, to pen the script. Apparently, the only prompt Harvey gave him was the ghoulish dancers at the pavilion, and Clifford came up with everything else on his own in just three weeks. So according to Peter Wilshire, quote, the next step was raising enough funds to make a first feature-length film, and it was not going to be easy. The original budget for Carnival of Souls was a minuscule $17,000. In addition, Harvey was able to raise another $13,000 from various acquaintances in and around Lawrence, Kansas, bringing the final total to about $30,000. The only professional actor in the cast was Candace Hillegas, who played Mary Henry. Hillegas was a New York actress trained at Lee Strasberg's famous actor's studio. And in a 1990 interview, Hillegas reflected on Carnival of Souls, saying, quote, I was paid $2,000 for doing the film. It seemed like a fortune, so much so that my husband quit his job as a waiter to concentrate on his acting career, and he got his first Broadway part almost immediately, unquote. Uh, I think in today's money... The film would have cost $125,000, which is nothing. Like, that is so small. And it apparently only cost about $50 to rent the abandoned pavilion. And Harvey (laughs) only had a crew of five people behind the scenes. So it was himself, cinematographer Maurice Prather, editor Dan Palmquist, assistant director 
Riza Badiyi and production manager Larry Snigas. And that was it. <laughs> wow, that's so small. It's very yeah. small. <laughs> it's very small. So according to Joshua Winning, quote, Harvey himself would play the man, masterminding the character's look by using white grease paint on his face and wet salt in his hair for a crusty, long dead appearance, unquote. I know. (laughs) So a few other facts from the TCM article about Carnival of Souls are that actor Sidney Berger, who plays the neighbor Johnny, is blind in the eye that Harvey had him use to peek through Candace Hillegas's room keyhole. I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) So he couldn't see it. He couldn't see a thing. (laughs) I was like, what even? (laughs) Yep. So it looks creepy on film, but it wasn't creepy really in real life. (laughs) Oh, my God. So the ghouls seen waltzing in the Saltaire Ballroom were hired from a Utah University dance class. And when Candace Hillegas' agent saw Carnival of Souls, he refused to represent her any further. (gasps) What? Yeah, dropped her like a hot potato. He said something along the lines of like, if you do this film, your career will be ruined forever, basically. And I mean, she didn't really do much after the film. But the thing is, is that this film became such a cult classic that I, I just I feel like it, if anything, it made her career blossom because like she was known. She's no known by people who love this genre. So, yeah. Well, what the heck even? I bet yeah. that guy feels silly now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's probably dead, but... <laughs> well, and we know her name, and we don't know his name, so there you go. Ugh. So Carnival of Souls was released in September of 1962, and it was a double-billed bi- double with a Lon Chaney Jr. horror movie called The Devil's Messenger in drive-in theaters. Oh! <laughs> yeah. It, they wanted it to go to regular theaters, but it just couldn't they just could not find a distributor that cared enough about it which is really sad yeah but unfortunately so yeah so the film went almost completely unnoticed while it was at drive-ins and it was basically a lost film until the 1980s when it was shown on late night television wow yeah and stand-up comedian and horror movie actor dana gould first saw the film when it was shown on tv in the 80s and at the time he had no idea what it was about but it frightened him to death and he actually gives a great interview discussing the film on the criterion collection dvd for carnival of souls so definitely check it out i thought that you were gonna say like it actually scared him to death he died (laughs) after watching the film (laughs) And his ghost gave an interview on the DVD. It's a cursed film. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was telling Abby this earlier, everyone, but uh, I first saw this film when I was 16. My cousin bought me, like, a box set of DVDs that, like, just had a bunch of public domain horror films on them, like White Zombie and, you know, and Carnival of Souls was on there. And The best. I watched Carnival of Souls in my bedroom late at night, and I freaked the fuck out. <laughs> I was, I was like, oh, my God. Like, when he shows up, like, and is nuzzling her neck in the mirror, and then when he, like, turns the chair 
in the doctor's office and he it's his face and she screams i lost my mind i think i i i went out of my body (laughs) my soul left my body it did i was i mean i was older i was 16 but i was i was frightened by that so i don't know i people who say this movie is not scary need to go home uh, you're silly because I am a 27 year old woman and it frightened me. Yeah. Freaking watching it upstairs on my laptop. Like, oh my God. <sighs> okay. So, according to Justin Morrow, quote, no one would blame you if you've never heard of Carnival of Souls, but from its simple plot and low budget, Harvey weaved a tapestry of sound and image that has continued to influence filmmakers from George Romero to David Lynch, unquote. And according to Greg Quick, quote, Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls is a milestone of low-budget horror. It's the most quietly influential horror film of the 1960s. Few American films of the era have done so much with such few resources, unquote. And this final quote I want to share is from Nitrate Diva. And they say, quote, the first time I watched Carnival of Souls, I was planning to make fun of it. I soon found out that it was no laughing matter. Something <laughs> about this film shoots you through a chill that you can't shake. I mean, I watch a lot of horror films, new and old, and while many have disgusted or disturbed me, few have actually scared me. This is one of them, unquote. <laughs> okay, so with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Mary Henry is a 20-something-year-old organist who was just recently in a terrible car accident in Kansas. Mary and two other women were drag racing against some young men when their car fell off a bridge and into the water. The car and two of Mary's friends were never recovered, but Mary, seemingly unharmed, emerged from the water a few hours later. When others ask her how she survived, she tells them she doesn't remember. Mary takes a job as a church organist in Utah and drives there overnight. While traveling, she has visions of a ghostly man staring at her through her car window and standing in the middle of the road. When she reaches Utah, she sees the abandoned Saltair Pavilion and learns that it was once a bathhouse turned carnival before it closed for good. She moves into her new apartment where she meets her landlady, Mrs. Thompson, and her lecherous neighbor, Johnny. Mm. She starts her job at one of the few non-Mormon churches in the area and meets her new boss, the minister. Mary is drawn to the pavilion and asks the minister to take her there. Once there, she asks if he can take her in and he refuses, saying that it's against the law. Mary begins to... (laughs) It's against the law, Mary. Don't even ask. (laughs) (laughs) Mary begins to see visions of the ghostly man everywhere she goes and has uncanny experiences in which no one can see or hear her. Finally, a doctor, who is not a psychiatrist, takes her to his office where he gives her unsolicited advice on the subject, saying that the man must be a manifestation of survivor's guilt. While at work, Mary plays an eerie tune on the organ, and when she is caught by the minister, he calls it sacrilegious and fires her. The neighbor, Johnny, asks Mary out on a date, and after refusing several times, she finally gives in, but only because she's afraid of being alone. Once out on the date, Johnny becomes upset that Mary is antisocial and eventually takes her home. 
At the apartment, he invites himself in, even though Mary is uninterested. She sees a vision of the ghostly man nuzzling her neck in the mirror and screams, scaring Johnny off. Mary returns to the doctor's office, telling him what happened, but soon realizes that it is not the doctor in the chair listening to her, but the ghostly man. Mary tries to escape in her car, on a bus, and eventually on foot, but she is chased by the man and a bunch of other ghostly figures no matter where she goes. She eventually winds up at the pavilion where she sees herself dancing with the ghoulish group in the arms of the man. Cut back to Kansas, where the car Mary was in the accident with is finally found, and all three women, including Mary, are found dead in the car. <gasps> dun dun dun! Ah, shocking! <laughs> oh, thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, so the Bechtel test. Um, I don't know if we should count this. Uh, I don't know if we've done something like this in the past. I honestly can't remember. I'll leave it up to the audience to decide. Uh, But Mrs. Thompson technically has a name, but she's never referred to by her first name. Like, she's always either landlady or Mrs. Thompson. Um, (laughs) Maybe that is her first name. (laughs) Mrs.? (laughs) Landlady. Landlady Landlady Thompson. Mrs. Landlady Thompson. (laughs) She was born no, into that count. career. <laughs> no, I okay, so it doesn't count. Um, but they're the only women that talk together. I besides, I guess, the women in the car, but they don't really talk together. They're like yelling at the boys and stuff. So yeah, and they don't have names. So that sucks. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> this is gonna suck even more coming up. Was the supporting <laughs> cast at least fifty percent women when we look at Nancy's dream team test? No. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. No. No, no, no. (laughs) So, that's great. Well, (laughs) what can you do? (laughs) Well, not much. It was the 60s, so. Yeah, it's true. Anyway. Let's get into our discussion, shall we? Yeah. Let's talk about the man and Mary. So according to Greg Quick, quote, Carnival of Souls uses literal smoke and mirrors to achieve its tone. When the man appears to Mary in her car window, Harvey uses inexpensive angled mirrors so his face would appear crisp and existing on the same plane. Whenever Mary encounters a ghost... Harvey frames them as counterparts, sort of like dead doppelgangers using reflections and refractions, unquote. Mm, I really like that. Mm, I do, too. And according to Kirla Janice, I hope I said her name right. Uh, she is a wonderful author, by the way. She wrote the book uh, House of Psychotic Women. Everyone needs to have this in their library. It's um, so good. That sounds incredible. Why haven't I read this? I don't know. I'm getting it for you for your birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thanks. It's so freaking good. Um, So she actually expands on this idea of them being sort of doppelgangers in her essay for Criterion and says, quote, 
Whenever Mary sees the ghostly face of the man, the camera deliberately frames them as counterparts, either with reflections in a mirror or a window, or rapidly altering zooms. Her moods likewise convey a split. Through most of the film, she is sullen, even venomous. But she will suddenly turn giddy when she visits the... When she visits the pavilion, she seems exhilarated, almost drunk. Scenes such as this send Mary into a frenzy as she tries to discern whether the problem is coming from within or without. She is flanked on her trip through the purgatorial landscape by authoritative men who position themselves as quote-unquote guides, and there is much about the film that exploits this tension between Mary and the condescending men around her. The doctor, who admits that he's not a psychiatrist but presses her to divulge her problems anyway, the priest, who urges her to save her damnable soul, and the lech, who threatens her with sexual assault morning, noon, and night. And then the man. Yeah, and then the man, who, like the titular hitchhiker in the aforementioned Twilight Zone episode, appears as Mary's doppelganger and the harbinger of her death. As the film repeats and substitutes identities, it implies that all the men are one and that all the men are reflections of Mary's hostility and transience. Mary is doomed. As her colleague quips at the beginning of the film, quote, if she's got a problem, it'll go right along with her, unquote. (laughs) Jeez. And I want to mention this a quote from this essay by Richard Harlan Smith that he wrote about Carnival of Souls for TCM. Uh, and he says, quote, Carnival of Souls chooses as its protagonist a modern, free-thinking, intelligent young woman whose independent independence is thwarted by a society clinging to gender roles and frowning on women taking the initiative. While Harvey's characters while Harvey's character name was likely meant by scenarist John Clifford, as a blandly mysterious descriptor, the phrase, the man, would soon enter the parlance of the American counterculture as a synonym for all things restrictive and repressive about the American dream, right? Like, we're going to fight the man. Uh, Yet, what's interesting is that Mary Henry, like Marion Crane from Hitchcock, Hitchcock's Psycho, before her, isn't uninterested in the dream. She wants it on her own terms, which is to say Mary prefers that she be allowed to enjoy it alone. Mm. The character was written by John Clifford as something of an enigma, a woman whose aloofness is key to her undying dilemma. Yet, as played by Candace Hillegas, who had to fight her director to make the character more human, Mary does engender sympathy and stands on something of a poster child for anyone who ever wanted, for whatever reason, to be left the hell alone. (laughs) Yes. A square peg in a round hole world, college-educated Mary can't resign herself to sharing a life with the pious eunuchs and tactless horn dogs she encounters. <laughs> she uses words and expresses curiosities men don't understand and women don't share, and her passions and proclivities determines her status in society. Like the Bride of Frankenstein's undying monster, Mary be- Mary comes to embrace her fate which mitigates the life she chose for herself. In the end, Mary isn't outclassed, just outnumbered. 
unquote. Mm, yes. I love this so much. <laughs> yes. 100%. Like, for me, when I watched this film, the man was this representation of so many things. And he's so frightening because, like, he is ghoulish, yes. But, f- like, for me, it's because of the way that he lurks. Yeah. That, like, that's what really got me. Because as a woman you really are dictated by fear a lot of the time. And I'm not saying that because we are women, we have to live our lives in fear, but it's such a big part of becoming who you are and learning about the world. Like fear of being seen as an outcast, fear of people thinking that you're crazy, fear of men, etc., etc. Like the really funny part about all of it though is that Mary is fearless on this like surface level. She's straightforward about what she wants, but the man is always there in her peripherals, like, waiting for her. Mm -hmm. And as she starts to unravel, he appears more and more, just as she has all these other interactions with the men in the film. So it's kind of weird. It's like, it's not a coincidence. Like, I think that it's definitely done on purpose, but... You know, and if it wasn't... It's such a happy accident. Yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly. and I 100% agree with you. The film gets compared to the Twilight Zone episode, The Hitchhiker, a lot, like when you read about it. And there's a good reason for that. Like in that Twilight Zone episode, it's it's about a woman traveling alone and she is stalked by a male ghostly figure who is trying to hitch a ride with her cross country. And he won't freaking leave her alone. <laughs> Get out of here, you man. <laughs> you man. <laughs> but um, it has a similar ending, too. You find out that she was in a car accident and she died. Um, and he was basically her, yeah, like her harbinger of death, as as this man is. Um, but, um, uh, but that's, you know, what happens to Mary in Carnival of Souls. Like, on her drive to Utah, she is stalked by the man. And then when she gets there, she's stalked some more. Like, he won't leave her alone. And... As a woman, you always feel like you are looking over your shoulder constantly. Yeah. And it sucks. Like, there are lots of women who travel alone all the time, but I guarantee you that they've had dealings with creepy guys on their journeys at least once. Yeah. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting being afraid of men. (laughs) Yeah. It's exhausting being alone, you know, doing things alone. You know, because you're you can get so like freaked out. Um, it's exhausting being a woman sometimes, most times. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent, one hundred percent. Oh, and I want to add that towards the end of the film, this relates to Mary and the man again. Um, towards the end of the film, we see all the other ghouls dancing together, right? And it's extremely heteronormative because it's men and women paired together dancing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that the man stalks Mary, the man that stalks Mary is alone. Like, he's not dancing. He's alone until she arrives to the carnival and he, she becomes his dancing partner, mm-hmm. further ensuring that she have a man in her life and live out a heterosexual relationship in this purgatory. Yeah. Yeah. So... This is sort of a one-off of the same topic, um, but let's talk about all the other men that are mentioned. Um, and Kier Lajanis, um, she mentions how all of the men 
in Carnival of Souls are sort of all clammed into this one man who is like stalking her and going after her. And I think that's a really great observation. Yeah. Um, Janice goes on and says, quote, before she leaves her old life in Kansas, while she's practicing in an organ factory, the manager there urges her to put her soul into her music and make more of an effort to engage with her surroundings. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He's like, (laughs) he's mansplaining it to her. Seriously. But she's very clear that her connection to the church is part of a financial transaction and nothing more. (laughs) When she gets to Salt Lake City, even the lecherous border across the hall finds her disassociation from the religious implications of her job to be rather suspect. Thinking like that, don't it give you nightmares? Oh my or God. whatever Johnny says. Yeah. I hate him. <laughs> He's the fucking worst. Yeah. So everybody funny. knows a guy's a guy like that too. Like oh, everybody does. Yeah. And it's the yes. worst. It's the worst. And it's, and it's the worst. Um Brian Tellerico says, quote, Harvey is also careful to make the world around Mary increasingly threatening, largely through the male archetypes he puts in her way. Most of the people that Mary meets in Utah are men, and most of them want to tell Mary what to do. Seriously. (laughs) From the man who tells Mary that he's not really a doctor before he offers his advice on how to fix her. I'm not really a doctor, but... uh... (laughs) I'm not a psychiatrist, but let me give you some psychiatric advice. What? Get (laughs) out of my face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh. and um, the priest who warns her about the safety of her soul to the lecherous creep. He gets described as lecherous multiple times by different people. I know. Including us. Lecherous (laughs) creep who lives across the hall. The men in Carnival of Souls push and pull at Mary as much as the ghostly figures who will eventually drag her down. Is Carnival of Souls a commentary on or an advisory against what happens to lonely women? One of the many brilliant elements of Harvey's work here is how menacing he makes the world around Mary, even when there is no evident threat. The entire world can be an evident threat to a woman alone. And when the sound of and when the sound around Mary disappears, when she can no longer hear or be heard by those around her, it could be merely the cheap effect of a low-budget horror film or a commentary on the ease with which women can be ignored, especially in the early 1960s, unquote. Oh, it's so sad because, yeah. like, Mary loses all of the female camaraderie she has in the accident. Yeah, they all die. Yeah. <laughs> And because of that, she's sort of, like, cut loose into the world to make her own choices and be her own person. And that's when the men in her life, like, really pounce, so to speak. Like, I would venture to say that Mary found a home with her closest friends who were female. And the fact that they were taken from her because of men. Yes. Like, that's a huge foreshadowing for the entire film. It's almost like she has two deaths. Like, because, I mean, really, she does. Like, first <laughs> with, yeah. like, all of her girlfriends, and then again, because the men in the film literally drove her to the brink, like, even in death. Yeah, she's, a, she's I guess, really a ghost. She's like, what's and she's the still freaking... <laughs> and And these men 
Right. And rather than she haunting anything, the men are all haunting her and she's the ghost. (laughs) I know. Like, what do you got to do to get some goddamn peace and quiet around here? (laughs) Apparently. I'm dead and I can't even (laughs) escape you in death. (laughs) Seriously. Like, the men in this film are seen as kind of a temptation like a problem for her yet she's being told that she shouldn't be alone and there is so much conflict going on within her and also around her and like another thing that I want to point out too is like maybe like I just thought of this kind of when we were talking about all like the heteronormative relationships with the ghosts Mm mm-hmm what if Mary is gay? Like, what if she only likes women? We like, don't for know. For real, for real. I, yeah. I don't know. I think there could be a strong possibility there. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm reaching, but mm, well, I don't know. This is, that's the <laughs> thing. Like, we talked about queer coding in our last episode about the haunting, but it's like there's not really any queer coding in this. But it, there it also isn't anything that says that she's not in a relationship with these two other women, right? So, right. you know, you can think whatever you want. Wouldn't that be so interesting that it's like she's interested in women and not just one woman, but she's interested in multiple women. <laughs> yes. And here's this one man who's trying to get her to be in a heteronormative relationship. Ugh. Oh, my Ugh. God. Abby, that's a great insight. I mean, maybe I'll write fan fiction about it. <laughs> erotic fan fiction about mary's polyamorous relationship in carnival of souls look for it on tumblr friends yes i would read it i'm sure everyone else would read it too oh but i you know going back to what you said i think you hit the nail on the head there because the women friends drag race against a bunch of guys and it's these guys like it's their idea to do the race yeah. And like, so the women make a choice, obviously, to follow through with the race. They don't say, no, go away, you men. But it, <laughs> it wasn't their idea in the first place. And honestly, can you can you blame them? This is probably like the most fun that they've had in ages. <laughs> Just saying. This is the most fun you can have in Kansas without taking your clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oops, we died. Well... <laughs> Right. Well, and I think that it's interesting that the men get away scot-free. Yes. Like, they they have no injuries or anything. They don't seem to really get in trouble with the police. And they could have lied about what really happened. Like, who knows? You know, like, maybe maybe they live with the guilt of the death of these three women. But I, I don't know, because they don't focus on them at all, because it's not their story or their tragedy. And I just think that it's also interesting that Harvey made a living off of warning youths about the dangers of being overzealous and this film feels like a warning you know like the author said before like this feels like a warning for women maybe not to be alone but maybe if you want to look at it from a feminist point of view maybe not to trust men to guide their decisions um yes 100 percent. because you can look at the entire car accident as like a metaphor for Like, what happens if you have, like, premarital sex? Like, you'll, if you're a woman during that time period, like, you'll go down because it's shameful and, like, yeah, you had fun, but, like, the men will get away with it because boys will be boys 
but yeah. like you're not free of the consequences if you're a woman and it like really wasn't even their fault like they didn't instigate anything so <sighs> yeah yeah and so I, that's what i thought was kind of interesting that that happened and like again like is harvey saying like don't listen to guys yeah i mean he's not this is what i'm thinking though like yeah. this, this yeah. is like a saying where it's like don't listen to these guys like make your own choices yeah. So let's talk about our next topic. We've already mentioned purgatory before. It's been mentioned in a few quotes. Um, but Janice talks about it a little bit more in her essay. And she says, quote, part of the film's brilliance is its ambivalence about whether its topography is psychological or spiritual, which allows the film to linger with both religious and secular audiences. But purgatory, by its very nature, exists as a means of addressing spiritual ambivalence. As Mary grows more frantic throughout the film, she becomes desperate to make contact, finally acknowledging that she is afraid to be alone. In reality, however, she has no lifeline. There is no one to bring her back, no one who would even care to. In her dying seconds, it is this... It is this that she ruminates on with all of us as witnesses to her existential despair, unquote. You know, and I'm going to like circle back around here and say that I think this film really speaks a lot about the connection that women have with other women and Mm -hmm. how that can be so important. And like I mentioned before, Mary, she kind of walks this tightrope between being strong, independent, free, and also longing for companionship and being vulnerable. And maybe her version of hell is not being able to connect with other women in meaningful ways. Like the only woman she ever has contact with after the death of her friends is her landlady. Yeah. And this woman is clearly part of like the pious group of townspeople that judge her for being a loner. It's like no matter where Mary turns, she's just alone. I think it's I think it's really funny that this takes place in Utah. Yeah. Which it has always been very conservative. I mean, it still is. Yeah. And I've never lived in Utah, but I have a few friends who currently live in Utah and uh, a cousin who used to live in Utah. And um, and they're Christian and they're like, this is way too conservative for us. And I'm not kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yes. (laughs) They are. They are Christians and they are like, this is too conservative. We got to move. I know it's a little it's a little wild. Um, But um, but doesn't that sound like purgatory, though? Like not like going through this hell because by definition purgatory is the condition process or place of purification or temporary punishment in which according to medieval Christian and Roman Catholic belief, the souls of those who die in a state of grace are made ready for heaven. Hmm. So yeah. So Mary's girlfriends, the only people we assume she has any sort of connection with are taken from her and she's made to suffer by living alone in a man's world slash old woman's world. And not only that, she is being stalked by a man. So, (laughs) (laughs) so really she's living, I think maybe the, what the majority of women's worst fears are like having old puritanical men, like having an old puritanical man as your boss the only guy who seems to want to hang out with you is a total creep. 
and you're constantly being stalked by another creepy dude, and the only female companion you have is an old lady who's obsessed with how many baths you take. <laughs> that is her That purgatory. sounds pretty that shitty is, to me. That is her hell. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, so I can definitely see this being purgatory for Mary. And, you know, maybe those other women had experiences like that too we just don't see their story we just don't see what their experience is we just know mary's right purgatory story i guess so oh poor mary i know so let's talk about dreams and nightmares in carnival of souls according to peter wilshire Quote, one plausible interpretation of Carnival of Souls is that the film represents a hallucinatory dream or nightmare that Mary is experiencing in the split second before the car plunges into the river and she plummets to her death, unquote. Hmm. Um, I'm going to share a quote that I found that was really, really excellent. And um, it says, death in dreams is really about some kind of change or ending you're dealing with in your life, says Mm. Lori Quinn Lowenberg, professional dream analyst and author. She says, the subconscious will show us this change in the form of a death so we can better understand the finality of it. We can let go of that which we no longer need so we can grow and embrace that which is coming. Uh, She goes on to say, if you know you're going to die in your dream, and you can't escape it, this has to do with a change you're anticipating and no is going to happen, according to Lowenberg. Um, she says that sort of dream is preparing you for this inevitable ending. Hmm. If you wake up right before you die in your dream, Lowenberg explains that this could just be your body's physiological response to a fear of death. Or you can wake up before the death happens because in real life, The actual change has not been completed. You're on the verge. You're on the cusp of it. So I thought that was just really interesting because this whole movie kind of feels very dreamlike. Oh, yeah. Like the the scenes where she is about to experience uh, the uncanniness of like nobody being able to hear her and and she can't hear anyone else like those they're the the image kind of like flickers a little and it looks like like water is mm-hmm. over the film and it's extremely dreamlike and you know this is what some people have said some people have said that this film might have inspired George Romero and David Lynch but there's no actual proof that either of them saw the film oh Yes, and that is actually what's really interesting to me because um, I can see, like, you see the zombies in Night of the Living Dead, Mm -hmm. and they look very similar to the man. In fact, they're dressed like him because they're all dead, right? So they're all wearing funeral attire, right? At least the the one in the beginning is is a zombie come from the grave. Yeah. And um, he looks a lot like the man. And then... um, if you are a Lynchian fan, you all know the Lost Highway, uh, and you all know the mysterious man who mm-hmm. uh, shows up and is at the party with the main character, and he asks him, oh, that scene is so amazing, where I almost want to show a clip of it in this episode, <laughs> or, you know, have a sound clip of it, but, like, he 
approaches him and he looks just like the man in Carnival of Souls. Like he has like the weird hair and the yeah. pale skin and the dark eyes and the suit. And he tells him, you know, I'm I met you at your house. In fact, I'm I'm there right now. And it's like, how can you be there? You're here with me. And then he calls the house and he's there. And he answers the house phone while he's standing in front of him. It's Ugh. so spooky. Um, but like I said, there's no actual proof that they saw this film. And I want to mention that when I was maybe 14, so this was before I saw Carnival of Souls, I made a short film uh, with my sisters and it was in black and white. And I had one of my sisters dress up in all black like she had a long sleeve black shirt on, she had her hair pulled back, she had a black skirt on, she had like striped tights on, black and white tights. <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> she had dark makeup on her face. Like she had like dark sunken eyes and then she had a white pale face. And it was not a spooky film. It's it was like me being like a little experimental and stuff. But it was silent and it was black and white and it was her dressed as as this person. And I don't know where that image came from in my mind. Wow. It just came. I just like, I want you to look like this. And I do, I'm pretty sure I had not seen Night of the Living Dead. I definitely had not seen Lost Highway at that point. And I definitely had not seen Carnival of Souls. But I had this image in my head of her dressed like these ghouls, like the female ghouls, at least, in Carnival of Souls. And I think that that's kind of weird that we all sort of have this image in our brain of the man yeah what it's like a shared dream it's like a collective yeah like a collective unconscious yes it is a collective unconscious it's a shared dream that we all have of this figure this ghoulish ghostly figure all in black with pale skin and sunken eyes and the fact that i that we all have this image in our brain I think is one of the reasons why Carnival of Souls is so scary because mm-hmm. it's like when people have night terrors and they see the shadow figures and Ugh. everyone sees them Ugh. and nobody knows why everyone sees these same beings. It's like that. And I think that is the key to the, the scariness, the, the uncanniness yeah. of Carnival of Souls is this image. So that's why I think it's really funny that it's like Carnival of Souls basically influenced every single film you've ever seen. Yeah. But but did it? Like did it did we yeah. actually know Carnival of Souls existed or had had we even seen it when we were thinking of these characters? So Ooh, that adds so much more spookiness to it too. Like what was the the writer and director thinking like when he drove by that like bathhouse and envisioned all of those ghouls like dancing with each other like where did he get that idea from you know what i mean like right and he said that he was a fan of uh bergman um igmar bergman oh okay but then it's like where did bergman get that idea from you know what oh. I mean? So it's like where and and nobody really in Bergman looks exactly like the characters in Carnival of Souls either. So yeah. it's just like it still seems original, but it's like it's it's almost not like it's weird. Like we all have this weird we all have this weird shared consciousness of this of this creature of this character. And it's really scary. 
Ooh, oh, Gracie, uh, great. Now I'm going to have nightmares. <laughs> I know. Now that I've really dived deep into it, I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> like, it's going to be a rough night. <laughs> Ew, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into our final thought. Uh, driving and freedom in Carnival of Souls. Oh, yes, I love it. Um, in a CNN article about 1960s car culture, Jareem Imam interviews a few people who were in their teens or early 20s in the 1960s when cars were a huge deal, not as common as they are now among youths. And the article states, quote, the 1960s era is known for its collection of trends and fads from hippie fashion to British rock and roll, but nothing defined youth culture more than the 60s car, said Matt Anderson, a historian and curator at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, in the 1960s, nearly 79% of American households owned fewer than two vehicles. Whoa! Yeah! And more than one out of five households didn't own a vehicle at all, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. Huh. It's a stark contrast from today's car ownership norms, where you're hard-pressed to find a vehicle-less household outside of a few major cities. Back then, those people who had cars were gods among people, Matt Anderson says. There was a lot of envy and admiration for those who had cars. People gravitated to those who had cars, and if you'd want a car to have that and you'd want a car to have that status. Linda Glovech, 67, remembers how her life in the suburbs of New York changed after she got a blue 1961 Chevrolet Impala with a white convertible top as a high school graduation present from her grandmother. I called everyone up, she says. Everyone I knew came over to look at it. It wasn't like today, where if you have even a little bit of money, you can get a car. If one person got a car in the neighborhood, all your friends went for rides in it. I was lucky to get it. Um, you know, I after reading this, too, I think back then, because transportation was really limited to, like, your family car or the mm -hmm. bus or the train, maybe plane, depending on how far you had to go. For a young woman to own her car and be responsible for the maintenance, cost, and general knowledge of what she was driving was a huge deal. Like, mm -hmm. not having to rely on your boyfriend or husband to take you places and, like, going to see the sites unchaperoned and, like, even like Mary driving cross-country, that was, like, pretty revolutionary for women. And although Mary first explores the abandoned pavilion with the aid of the priest... She ends up exploring it on her own, and she's able to do that because she has a vehicle. Mm, yep. So I think that it's also pretty ironic that she ends up dying in a car, but it ends up being this, like, the car that she has ends up being this beautiful thing that lets her explore on her own, and but she dies at the hands of her friend who loses control of the car on the bridge. It's almost as if, like, it's a warning to her that if she explores too much, she'll be doomed. And, like, of course, ultimately, she is. So, yes. Yeah. <sighs> and you, you know what? This We didn't talk about this at all in our episode about The Haunting, which was the previous episode. Please check that out if you're interested. Yeah. Um, But Eleanor also has a car. Yeah. 
And this is a, this came out. The Haunting came out the year after this movie, 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, and Eleanor uh, basically has to commandeer the car. Yeah. Um, that she shares with her sister. And uh, she uses it to get away. She uses it to drive to her freedom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately her also her demise. It's the, almost the exact same thing that happens with Mary, which is really funny. I didn't even think of that until just now. Um, yeah. That these are women who use this 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 vehicle, this machine, this man-made machine, and they use it to go to their freedom, to go to their job. I mean, Eleanor is working, right, for this parapsychologist. Yeah. Going to their job, and Mary uses it to go to her job in a different state. Yes. And ultimately, like using this car to go to freedom ultimately yeah is like also her demise their demise and i i think that that's really interesting because shirley jackson loved having a car Mm -hmm. and i think we talk about this in our episode about shirley jackson but she loved having a car because she loved the freedom of just being able to get out of the house because she had four children just getting Ooh. out of the house <laughs> and getting away from her her obnoxious husband and <laughs> she was able to just think and be alone and do what she wanted for once and then that backfire I mean it didn't backfire for Shirley Jackson but it backfires for Eleanor and it backfires for Mary you know and what that's sad it that is super sad because if you want to talk about previous episodes we've done too, there's also like Death Proof. It's an entire yeah. film a- about cars and women enjoying their freedom and like being in cars that they love. And then there's this guy who comes along and he's like, mm, you're not allowed to do that. And then these women at the end of the film are like, fuck you. We do what we want. <laughs> yeah. And they are like, and they no, end up being like, better at it they take control of the situation. So yeah. it's like, man, I never made that link until like just now, like the the power that cars have in horror. And like when you talk about women and stuff like that, it's so crazy. We could probably do an entire episode on just that, but. Oh, oh we could. I um, like, I would love, I'm not a car person, but I would love Abby if you wrote like an essay or something about horror movies and women with cars. Like I think oh my that'd God, be yeah. so cool. Yes, I would love to. Maybe oh. I will. Yeah, we need to update the blog. <laughs> <laughs> These people are like, yeah, geez, why don't you get on that? <laughs> Sorry, guys, life is hard sometimes. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so interesting. Ooh. Yeah. Well. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. We have something new that we're going to try. Yes. Uh, Abby, would you like to explain what it is since you came up with a way better name for it than I did? Yeah. So <laughs> we, because of this goddamn pandemic and all of the stupid shit that's been happening lately in the world, I was like, all right, we got to like close out our episodes with something good that's been happening to us lately so i have like we were kind of racking our brains trying to think about what to call it 
I think we're going to start calling it sugar cubes, right? Mm-hmm. Like just just a little something, something to add to your coffee every week. So I wanted to call it you scream, I scream, we all scream. <laughs> Which is also freaking <sighs> great because no. who isn't screaming these days? Honestly? No, that's, that's the opposite of what we're trying to do. That's why sugar <laughs> cubes is so much better. <laughs> It's on um, brand too. <laughs> yes, yes, it's all it's all good stuff. Um, so yeah, I guess my little sugar cube for the week is that I found an amazing therapist. Yes, and I have been having these little telehealth therapy sessions with her every week. And let me tell you, my like whole world and perspective has changed about so many things and I'm a sincere advocate for mental health. I everybody knows like I'm really big on psychology. So I encourage everyone if you think that you need it or even if you don't think that you need it, find a therapist because it'll change your life and it's great. I also love therapy. I think therapy is the best thing since sliced bread. I we- Yes. Anytime anyone says anything like, oh, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this, I'm like, talk to a therapist. You will find the tools you need to function. Whether And like you said, whether you feel like you need one or not, it's amazing how much we internalize and how much we think yes. we have under control, yep. not realizing that we might be suppressing a lot. And a therapist helps you kind of discover that. You know, It's so true. And you know what? Make it accessible for literally everyone. Oh, everyone oh mm-hmm. it needs yeah. to happen so what what about you gracie what are some good what's something well, good i feel like if we didn't have the pandemic going on i would have more sugar cubes <laughs> more towards me if that makes sense because i have a little boy yeah and um i feel like a lot of my sugar cubes come from what he does and i don't want that to be like my identification but you know i am a mom and sometimes, like, your kid is your sugar cube. Oh, my God. 100%. You know, sometimes they are the one that's keeping you from falling apart, especially since he's just a little baby still. So I think my sugar cube is that I was able to take him to the lake that is near my family's home, and he was able to swim for the first time, and Aww. he loved it. And so to see, like, four generations at this lake all there at the same time, like, my grandfather, my mother, me, and then my son, it was oh. it was very special to me. It was – and I'm a Cancer, so I'm all about family and all about the home and all about that kind of stuff. So And the to water. See, and the water. And so to see, like, my family there and to see my son enjoying this family tradition of swimming in this lake – uh, was very special and it really touched me. So that's my sugar cube. Oh, that's so yeah. precious. Yeah, it was very nice. I love it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Just an update on our Patreon. If you are new to Patreon, we won't be sending out any gifts, maybe until this whole COVID-19 crap blows over. Also, the USPS is a mess right now. So <laughs> please buy some stamps, buy some stamps, um, go to change.org and and get get that Postmaster General out of there. 
Hell yeah. You know what? Sure. <laughs> Freaking get some spooky Halloween stamps. Are you kidding me? Yes. yes. I think women's suffragette stamps are out now too. I think I saw something about that. Hell yeah. Just get it all. Just fund <laughs> just fund the USPS. Those are those are the people in blue we should be supporting. Uh yeah, 100%. Uh, so that is what we should do. Okay, so like I said, USPS is a mess. COVID's happening. No gifts are being sent out right now, everyone. So please hang tight. We will send them out eventually. However, you can also support the show by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. So you can go to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you to our shop. Uh, so you can treat yourself for the spooky season. And also please consider donating what you can to the Black Lives Matter movement as well as to Trans Lifeline. Links as always are in the show notes of this episode. Yes, and we know that times are tough right now. <laughs> so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.